Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, Executive Editor at Glossy. And today's guest is Francesco Clark, the founder and CEO of Clark's Botanicals. Welcome, Francesco. Hello. Thank you for having me. So, Francesco, for those of out there in the ether who may not know your story and your brand, tell us a little bit about the impetus for launching Clark's Botanicals. Absolutely. I used to work, um, I was working at Condé Nast, and then I went to Harper's Bazaar at Hearst Magazine. And I was there for a year celebrating um, my promotion. And I had a summer share house in Long Island. I dove into what I thought was the deep end of a pool because the metal um, ladder that they normally put in the deep end was in the shallow end. The second that I dove in, my chin hit the bottom of the pool and it snapped back with such force that it shattered my C3, C4 vertebrae two inches above that little bump in the back of your neck. And I was told I had a 19% chance of surviving that night and the next two years of my life my vocal cords were paralyzed. I could not breathe. My left lung had collapsed. Um, and I was dealing with the trauma of paralysis and severing my spine. Um, one of the side effects that I learned um, came along with my paralysis was that my skin stopped reacting to temperature. So as I started to get better, um, I wanted to do more and be more um, and kind of feel more empowered but my skin lost its ability to sweat. It could be 100 degrees outside, and it still to this day will not react to temperature. So with that, it can't release itself of toxins, and I developed what looked like skin that was 10 years older. It looked like rosacea. I had these like little pebbles of sand it looked like under each pore. Um, so and how old were you at this time? 24 years old, yeah. And I was living... It, so it's interesting because... I was living my dream life where I worked really hard um, and Glenda Bailey had just started at Bazaar. And so um, there was a lot of focus on the magazine to bring in readership and newsstand sales and, and ad dollars. So we were delivering. It was a much smaller team from Condé Nast um, where I had worked before and I liked it more because I had more responsibility. And now... Um, I couldn't reach for a glass of water and I couldn't scratch my face if I was itchy at night and I would just wake up and have these, you know, flashbacks of drowning in a pool and having a near-death experience. And then I started a skincare line. <laughs> <laughs> so... Francisco, obviously, this is one of the most authentic founder stories that I've heard. And we are in the beauty and wellness industry mm -hmm. where everyone is a founder today. So tell us a little bit about kind of realizing or having that aha moment between, hey, I had a real issue um, that may not seem as obvious of a problem to solve, mm -hmm. um, but wanting to start a brand that maybe could speak to that. I never started Clark's Botanicals as a brand to sell. I never started thinking, um, oh, what's my ROI going to be and what are my cost of goods um, on this product? I did this purely as an emotional and psychological exercise to feel like a human being again. And my father is a medical doctor and was also one of the first homeopathic doctors who's also a medical doctor in the U.S. Um, and I turned to him and I said, you know, I don't want to stay home eight hours a day every day. I did that for three years. I would not leave the house. And um, I would only leave the house to do physical therapy um, in the hospitals that I would go to. 
but dealing with the deepest, darkest depression, which was uh, a way of reacting to the trauma um, and the sadness and shock that I caused my family and my good friends, I wanted to be the opposite of a worry. And so the opposite of a worry meant becoming a wallflower. So I would shave my head bald every week. I would wear the same shirt every day, same blue, ugly hospital pants every day. And I used to work in fashion. So the <laughs> irony in that is um, now that I'm, now that people started using the products organically, um, little by little, and we were giving them away for free. And what year was this? So my injury was in 2002. We started um, mixing literally in our kitchen in Bronxville in 2005. And we were just, my sister started stealing samples from my desk and then my mom started stealing samples from my sister because they started to look at my skin. They're like, if it works on his skin, that's the most reactive, um, then it's probably going to work on mine. And then my dad's patients started asking for them too. And then we launched in store in 2010. So when you launched that brand, what were you thinking about a go-to-market strategy or a marketing strategy? Or, you know, did you think that this was going to be a business that you had 10 years later? The day that um, Glenda called me into the office and said, you know, I want to see you and catch up. I heard that you had an experimental stem cell surgery in China and you're doing better. So I went to go see her. I didn't have money to hire an aide or a nurse. And my sister was um, in medical school at the time and she was like my assistant. So she was driving me around everywhere. And she came with me to the meeting. And um, it was a two-hour tea, very English <laughs> tea meeting with, um, with Glenda. And it was fun and lovely. And she said, well, you look the same. You just look like you're sitting. And my sister opened her bag and she said, well, he's not just doing nothing. He's also making this with our father. And one of the glass vials that she stole from my desk, she took out as she was talking and gave it to Glenda. And Glenda said, well, if you're using it, I have to use it. And she put it on her face. And then I go home and I was incredibly embarrassed because I was kind of like, Charlotte, this is not a brand. We don't, I didn't, I'm not coming to this meeting to sell anything. I just was saying hello. And we got a call five weeks later and Glenda's assistant said, you know, she's shooting it for the September issue. And I said, thanks, but no thanks. She said, before you hang up, I'm going to put you on the phone with the beauty director. I get on the phone with her and she said, whether you like it or not, it's going to be in there. She's giving you five months and find two reputable retailers, find a factory um, and make it look chic, but it's happening. And make it look chic. That make easy. it look chic. It's yeah. very, I know. So the the irony in this is that um, having come from a background that was very visual, my number one goal was to only focus on the formulations and making sure that it was immunostimulating to the skin and that if you use a product on a Monday but not on Tuesday, and Tuesday you still were reaping the benefits of the ingredients penetrating the second layer of the dermis and doing something. So for me, innovation meant a product that people actually want to buy because it actually works. Um, the aesthetic part of it was secondary to me, even though that's the world I came from. So there's there's something interesting in that. And it might have been because I, I had my injury um, just before and it, there was a seriousness to that. And when I think about the product, I didn't want it to be condescending, um, 
to our female customer. I did not want like a pink jar with bows everywhere and like 10 words to describe what the product is. I wanted it to look serious, to work. Um, Our ingredients are expensive, but at the end of the day, you have to feel better because you look better. And having those mirror moments, um, which we use a lot in, in Clark's Botanicals because it's about empowering yourself. So having that sense of self-care every morning where no matter where you are in your life, you're in the bathroom and it could be three minutes or five minutes or 10 minutes, um, but you're looking in the mirror and it's that time for yourself. And that's really when you are guaranteed to be um, reflective. I mean, literally and metaphorically, but you're building up to the person that you want to be. And that's one of those things that I like about skincare because if your skin looks so good that you don't need makeup, you're not afraid. You're not afraid. So I initially was very afraid. I initially did not want to be in public and talk to strangers or see strangers because I felt like my wheelchair was what defined me. Um, But then I regained bit by bit um, more of kind of what my ethos was and the kind of person that I am and, you know, going out barefaced in New York City and saying hi to strangers became a way of reentering the world. And beauty and fashion were the two industries that were probably the most welcoming and supportive that I would ever, ever encounter. And you would think of it as like shallow and frivolous, but it was the opposite. It is the opposite. So... You know, obviously, the support that you got from Glenda and the support that you got from that issue really drove kind of you deciding, you know, you wanting to sell this and wanting to serve female customers. What was that experience like going into retail for the first time and and finding those two retailers to sell your products? It what was, was the learning curve like? Um, it was a steep learning curve, but it's just it's just as steep now as it was then. I Talk mean, about that a little bit. You can never, you can never idle on a business model. You can never um, assume that just because something worked before, it's going to work now. Which, by the way, is why um, all these new emerging brands are chipping away at the big three beauty conglomerates that you think about. There is no sacred cow anymore in beauty. And, and in fashion, when you think about fast fashion. But you think about sustainable efforts, you think about innovation and formulas, you think about transparencies, you think about, um, I mean, influencer marketing, for example. In order to be an influencer, you're not, you're probably not a supermodel. You know, you're not like one of the top three supermodels, which is like the old paradigm in in the beauty industry. The new, the new paradigm in the beauty industry is being an empowered customer being an empowered consumer, being an empowered, just having a voice and, and saying something, which is the opposite of what it was before, which is the opposite of that Photoshopped kind of image of overly perfected everything. Um, so when she said yes to us and versus where we are now, we're pivoting and listening to our customers just as much as we were then. I mean, I launched in, we did store events at CO Bigelow and then we launched in Fred Siegel. And in store events and talking to customers. At the time, social media was not a thing. Um, Everything was still very editorial. Everything was about um, print and actual magazines. 
And at the time, websites were an adjunct. It was like the Wikipedia version of whatever you were reading, whatever magazine you were reading, or whatever brand you were reading. It was the Wikipedia version of it. Today, it is your store. So how do you want your store to look? It is where every buyer and every editor will look before they even have a meeting with you. And if your website is not an, a true, honest, accurate rep- representation of the brand with energy, what's the point? I mean, if you can't do that, then um, why would anybody buy it? Because now everything, I mean, the reality is that everything is direct-to-consumer now. So even if you're not a DTC brand, it's you still have to play in that realm. How has that maybe shifted your perception of what you want to do at retail? And if you want to partner with a Net-A-Porte, a Nordstrom, a Space NK, mm-hmm. like how has that maybe shifted your focus? So... Understanding the psyche of what it means to buy a product. When you're buying um, skincare in particular, you're there's a part of you that's admitting to something that you want to make better. And with that, there's there is a try and buy aspect of sampling programs when you think of um, you know, sample kits, when you think of all the initiatives that um, Birchbox and then Ipsy had started years ago. Um, there is that aspect of it, but there's also, there is a very strong correlation with a true partner in brick and mortar. So the old business model of a typical beauty company would have been get launch at, um, it used to be like launch at Barney's, Bergdorf's and Bendel's. Um, now only one of those is around. So now you would only launch at Bergdorf. <laughs> Goodman. But, um, and then after that, you would go a little bit wider with distribution and brick and mortar. And then after that, you would go much wider. So the ultimate goal would be to um, have 500 doors and then some.com. Today, um, and our approach is to have um, very strong direct-to-consumer um, sales, which which we do, um, and strategic brick and mortar partners. So we're very lucky that we're in Space and K. In the UK, we're growing very much. I think it's because they think we're British with the name Clarks. But um, we're also in Space and K with Nordstrom, Space and K with Bloomingdale's. Um, we we do incredibly well when we have in store events. Um, people will have seen our social media. People will have understood and heard about the brand, but there is a touch point to it that needs to make sense. And um, using paid social and doing A-B testing, and we're using artificial intelligence in the back end of our customer experience online with paid social, and also looking at affiliate marketing, but understanding your demographic in the right way. Who are you speaking to and how are you speaking to her? And what kind of language and images does she like when you know that she already likes the product? So how do you, instead of just um, getting new customers, how do you retain them? So the retention of customers is very important. We have a high customer retention rate, but all of that has changed in the new model as opposed to the old beauty model. When you think about who that customer is and Obviously, it's a luxury customer because you're talking about Space NK and mm-hmm. the price point reflects that. Mm-hmm. You know, some would argue that that customer wants to be in store more than ever. Mm-hmm. 
other brands have bucked that. So would you say that's the case for yourself? We, um, I think there's a hybrid version of that. I think that um, we will never have, you know, competing with Sisley and La Prairie in store. Um, and we've done that. You know, we, we when we were at Saks, it was impossible to deal with having, you know, we have one counter manager. Um, at the time, we had one counter manager, and they would have like eight with more than a dozen freelancers working just in that one door. How do you compete with that? That's very difficult to to work with when you're a small brand, but using the creativity and looking at different ways of being a little bit more risky. So um, pop-up stores, for example, give that touch point of um, trying the product, hearing, hearing about the story, um, and actually speaking with the founder. Um, this, a podcast, for example, when was this? This was never around before. So this is a huge platform of speaking directly to editor, to founder, and listening to the conversation that you and I would have had behind closed doors. So that's, so this right now, you know, what everybody's listening to is a huge difference because it has unveiled, um, that third wall that customers did not understand before. And before, you would just see a product in a magazine and be like, oh, wow, it's so cool. But they wouldn't understand, um, nor would nor would I, if I wasn't in that process, um, what it means to have support from editors in the beauty industry and what that means. Speaking of taking down veils in the beauty industry, um, Francesco, tell us a little bit about what happened last year. You know, you had taken investment from Glance Sale a few years ago mm-hmm. and um, was part of a portfolio that was supposed to be their very large beauty portfolio with Julep and Laura Geller, mm-hmm. and they went bankrupt. Mm-hmm. What happened? So um, I'm going to take one one step back from there. Three years ago, we sold to Warburg Pincus. We sold 100% of, I sold 100% of Clark's Botanicals to Warburg Pincus, who had started Glance Sale as an umbrella. Um, a holding company that I was excited to do it. And it was removing my ego from it is kind of where the business had grown and what was best for the business meant scaling the business to the next level and getting that investment and infrastructure in place. We had had a couple different offers from um, two of the big beauty players and one other um, group. But Glancell... Um, seemed like the right fit because with private equity backing it in the way that they did, there was a lot of momentum and excitement um, with it. What I learned um, is that you don't, you can't have, or you can't expect to have a $50 million company, a $30 million company, and a $10 million company, and it equates to $90 million. So the scale and growth of each brand requires different focus and different resources. Um, One of the things that attracted me to signing the deal was to looking at a shared backend, shared production, um, understanding digital in a stronger way. And I have, I learned so much and I'm so grateful to have been um, in that experience. Obviously, you know, when they told me that the group would be um, claiming bankruptcy, bankruptcy, the, like the day after we were on the gill, 
King CBS show and we had the highest number of sales we've ever had. Felt like I had my highest high, my lowest low within a week. But it also showed me what Clark's Botanicals had been able to survive. And we were, you know, we were growing. We were positive EBITDA. Um, We were by far the smallest of the three. But arguably Um, doing the best. Well, I I mean, I, I guess, like, when you think about, you know, who's negative, who's positive, but I don't look at it that way. I look at it more like, um, you know, Jane Park, the founder and CEO of Julep at the time, is the smartest person I've ever met. And to understand her e-commerce um, foundation and what it means to be direct-to-consumer, um, and then looking at Laura Geller, who was the QVC queen. I mean, she is QVC. And understanding that it's very dangerous to be completely siphoned into one one category. Um, and then, you know, looking at Clark's Botanicals and how we could diversify um, those approaches and really tell the story in the most proactive way, but with different touch points. So the omni-channel approach and understanding that we're human beings and we don't just like look at something and buy something. We don't just hear something and buy something. There's actually touching it and listening to the founder. And then and then you like the visuals and you like the packaging and you understand the formulation and clinicals and stuff like that. But um, as soon as I found out about um, going into bankruptcy, my mind went into, how do I take this back? And, um, and that's stri- immediately what you thought. Yeah. I mean... Listen, I was drowning in a pool and I didn't think I would die. So I'm fight or flight, fight takes over for me. I mean, that's something that um, just kicks into gear. And I really, um, I never look at it like uh, controversial or um, fighting them and doing it. I was doing it for the growth of the brand. And we have people on payroll and they have families and that's, that's part of me. Um, I started the brand from a hospital bed when I didn't feel like a person and I felt alienated. And then to have customers believe in us, we had no investment before Glansale. So having customers believe in Clark's Botanicals and having it grow organically to where we were at the time also means that now the customer is my number one priority because if they believed in the brand to grow it to where it is, It also means that that is my number one objective. And the team that we have in place is part of the family. And they're just as passionate about the brand as we are. So bankruptcy for me was frightening because it meant um, possibly saying goodbye to teammates. And I wouldn't let that happen. So what did the process look like in buying it back? Uh, Well, um, it actually, it was, it was, it felt like dynasty looking back. I mean, when you look back on it, it's... Um, well, this is just a few months ago. I Well, a year ago. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I think it's a year ago today. Um, <laughs> so it was one of those things where everybody that I would talk to said, this is going to be impossible for you to buy it back. And, you know, a lot of the conversations... I literally got laughed at. Um, but those same kinds of personalities were the people that 
um, also were part of the bankruptcy process. So how much of that can you believe if they haven't really proven themselves also? So I started thinking outside of the box a little bit more and um, looking at how small we were and um, looking at, you know, speaking with um, the bidders for who wanted to buy the other brands. And Clark's Botanicals required a lot of investment at the time because we were undergoing the rebrand that that I just you just saw with the new jars in front of you, but it required a lot of ramp up to do that. And when you're buying a distressed um, group of companies, um, I think that they wanted it to be more turnkey and scalable very quickly. So Laura Geller and Julep seem appealing to that. With us, um, if I was not involved, they would not see as much of a value in that. So um, that was one of the things that I was able to do in my favor because um, I was the only founder that remained a CEO during the entire buyout. Um, and I was very involved and it meant, you know, understanding that I had a lot to learn from the bigger team because they, Glansale was full of incredibly talented people um, that I learned from. Um, but it also meant that I had to completely put my ego aside and say like, okay, I'm wrong on this. You know, how would you look at this situation and, and look at the business kind of step by step and um, evaluate everything. During the, the buyback, um, I took what I learned and I ran with it. Um, and then buying it back felt surreal. I mean, for us to suddenly not have these golden handcuffs where we had to, we didn't have to wait on approval for getting certain things done. Things could pivot much more quickly. Um, suddenly redoing our website went into um, a fast track. Um, getting our social media um, more focused. New product development was a huge thing. So I love formulating. I love looking at new product development in the pipeline. Um, we immediately went into NPD because we hadn't had a significant launch in, God, almost two years. Um, we had the dual charcoal detox launch, but that was not such a focused launch. That was more um, of, of a quick launch, and it was during that entire process. So we weren't able to give it the focus that it deserved. And now we were looking at innovation from every point of view for the brand. So, you know, what did we learn from... Um, what, julep, what made Julep so strong and so relevant years ago um, and looking at that and kind of um, looking at Clark's Botanicals through that magnifying glass and amplifying it. When you bought back your company and you were in the middle of kind of all of these various initiatives, priorities, the website redesign, the packaging redesign, the product innovation, you know, arguably you would have to one would say that you would have to focus. What were you choosing? What were you going to take your bet on? What was that for you? Or how are you kind of able to keep all those balls in the air? Well, um, the biggest part of the buyback was having a strong team. And um, the biggest difference from um, me running the company before and now is that now I have um, these teammates that are... I'm 
never the smartest person in the room, which could mean I'm always an idiot, or <laughs> it could mean that um, they are they are just incredible people, and they are incredibly talented people, and everybody knows their sector so well, and they're so they're such experts in what they know that we push each other. We think outside of the box a lot. We are innovative because we're passionate. We're not doing something just to do something different. So that's what's incredibly different now. Um, one of the things that changed right after was, for example, um, one example is the UK. Um, we had not been allowed to send freelance back into the UK. And so I had to build back trust in the brand because going through a bankruptcy process means a lot of your vendors don't get paid. I, as I was finalizing the buyout, I'm not allowed to say, hey, guess what? Like there might be something happening. Like you're, you're not allowed to do that. So I had to quickly um, build back the trust for the partners that we had with um, 3PLs, um, CMs, um, even like PR, social media, everybody. Um, every single person that would get paid from the brand had to understand that we, we were continuing stronger than before. Um, and that is person to person. And that is, do they believe in your product? Do they believe in you? How serious are you and how um, determined are you to make it work? Um, and that's really what you're saying to customers when they're looking at a jar and buying something. They have to understand the intention of what you're doing. Um, it's different because like for a customer, it's in the blink of an eye. You kind of have to like look at it, you get it, and then you want to buy it. Is that what part of the repackaging and redesign was about? A hundred percent. I think so with um, the repackaging, um, it really plays into the sense of the lens of no longer being as editorial as before, now being in um, the kind of the power play is in the customer um, now. So looking at a product that looks more energetic, our old jars were a dark, dark green, but they looked black. Sitting on a store shelf, that does not give off energy. That absorbs energy, and you would just walk right by it. So, but in a photo, in a magazine, it looked amazing, because everything else... like Was white. Yes. So we updated our green to um, a very bright green, which I always joke around. Everybody hates when I say this, but it's Kermit. I call it Kermit green, but it's not Kermit green. But it's a very bright, energetic green. Um, it's... Uh, emotive of what our um, all of our research and looking at formulating in the last five years and discovering our Jasmine Catalyst Complex, um, which is in all of our formulations. So reformulating everything. Everything is clean. Everything is um, immunostimulating to the skin. Um, we have our new Jasmine Vital Cream, which is this like gel cream hybrid moisturizer. But you know, the way that the product looks has to be reflective of the way that it acts. And what I became frustrated with was it looked elegant but masculine, even though 90% of our customers were women. So that already was something that I was just like, wait, I don't, that doesn't make sense. Um, and the products, when you put the Smoothing Marine Cream, which is our best-selling product on your face, it tingles. But it's in a dark jar. So it doesn't look... Um, it wasn't packaged in a way that would reflect 
the way that the product would feel um, and act on your skin. So we're using glass, which is sustainable. Um, we're introducing a 30 ml size of the moisturizer, so there's a lower price barrier to entry. Um, but we're also keeping 50 ml. So looking at sustainability, um, products at work, and energy. Last question for you, Francesco. A lot of founders today are looking for investment. A lot of founders today are looking, turning to private equity, to VC money. Mm-hmm. Based on what you know now and based on what happened, mm-hmm. would you do it again? Yeah, totally. I would. Um, it has to be the right person. It has to be the right partner. Um, I am a realist. So I knew exactly what I was getting into when I signed that deal. And... When you are a founder and you're selling, you are selling. You, you have no control. They can say whatever they want to you, and you have to know that going into it. You have to know these people are going to pretend to be your best friends, but when you sign that deal, they could fire you, kick you out in the blink of an eye. You have to know that before you sign. Um, I did. I knew what to expect. Um, I would do it again in a heartbeat. It just has to be... Um, the right people, the right relationships, um, understanding the way that they want to grow the brand. It's not about me. You have to remove yourself from it. You have to look at the business holistically and how excited will, how committed will your customers be to the brand after it is it is acquired? And if the investment means the brand is growing in the right ways, then you should do it. Perfect. Thank you so much, Francesco. It was great having you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Tune in next week for another episode. And of course, that means if you haven't subscribed, please hit that button.